This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo, episode 39. Coming up on today's show, what did Mueller know and when did he know it? And the mailbag, all that and more on the way on Still Standing. No talking points, no spin, it's politics you can't put down. This is Still Standing with Michael Caputo. Hello and welcome to Still Standing with Michael Caputo. I'm Michael Caputo, but I guess you already know that. I do this podcast every week, you know, 30, 40 minutes of audio, videos here and there, little blog posts at stillstandingpodcast.com. Uh, this is available, of course, on on uh, all the usual suspects, all the different, you know, the different platforms, iTunes and all the Stitcher, all those things. I appreciate you taking the time to listen in. Uh, means a lot to me. Means a lot to my team. Thanks a lot to our producer, uh, Sean Dwyer. But I want to get right to it because there's something today that's kind of been bothering me, and it's been bothering me for a little bit of time. We all remember, oh, what at the end of May when uh, former FBI Director Robert Mueller came out in his. It wasn't a press conference. It was a press statement. Let's make no mistake. Uh, he did not take questions from the press, and uh, usually that would get a Republican hung by the yardarm. But uh, Mueller came out, made a made a statement, uh, said that he's shutting down his office, didn't want to go and testify, and walked away without taking questions. But as he stood there talking about locking up his office down in Patriots Plaza in Southwest D.C., I couldn't help thinking to myself, when did Bob Mueller? actually know that there was no Russian collusion. That matters to me. That matters a lot to me. And it matters because, you know, for, for very obvious reasons, it, it re- I mean, if he knew that there was no Russian collusion before the 2018 midterm elections, he was rather duty-bound to announce that. And it was shortly after his press conference uh, that I noticed a piece written by an old friend of mine in National Review called Did Mueller Sit on His No Collusion Conclusion? And that's why I invited DeRoy Murdoch, my old friend, a Fox News contributor, National Review online contributor, a guy I've known since we were kids. Your piece, I, I just, I, I'm really struck by this. Your piece starts with one sentence that I think is the most important sentence that everyone should be thinking about. What did Robert Mueller know, and when did he know it? Droy, do you think that Robert Mueller knew there was no Russian collusion long before the 2018 midterms? I sure get that sense, uh, which is disturbing and disappointing, Mike. And uh, uh, look, if it turned out that he figured out, okay, there's no Russian collusion, and he came to this no collusion conclusion uh, you know, middle of March and then wrote his report and then handed it to uh, Attorney General Barr in uh, mid-April, then fine, there's really nothing to worry about here. But uh, there's, there, there are pretty clear indications in the report that he knew about this uh, at least uh, beginning of August of last year. That was about 95, degree, 95 days, I should say, 95 days before the midterm 
elections. And uh, I think he absolutely... At the latest, right? At the latest. At the latest, latest, yes. And probably maybe sooner, maybe even sooner than that, earlier than that, Uh, which means uh, August 2 of uh, of 2018, this was a good uh, three three months plus, almost three months and a week before the uh, November midterm elections. And President Trump and Republicans have had this this albatross hanging around their necks. Uh, Oh, Trump's a KGB agent. He's a Russian asset. You know, he and Putin talk every night and plot and plan how they're going to help Russia and undermine America, blah, blah, blah. And there are millions of people who who believe this garbage because it's all they heard from the media nonstop for two and a half years. And so if Robert Mueller had evidence that, in fact, this Russian collusion thing was a fake, didn't take place, wasn't so, he absolutely needed to come forward and say, look, this isn't true. This is bogus. It's not happening. And then let people make whatever decisions they want in the election, support or, or oppose whatever candidates they wished. And instead, he stayed quiet about it. A lot of people went to the polls thinking, you know, the president of the United States is a, is a Russian agent and therefore lets vote uh, the Republicans out of office, give the Democrats uh, the House of Representatives to, to act as a, as a watch on him. Uh, and uh, I think that's what happened. And I think uh, Mueller stayed quiet in part because he's a never-Trumper. And if that meant that Nancy Pelosi has to take over the House and Maxine Waters has to take over the uh, Financial Services Committee, uh, AOC gets to have a much greater position of prominence than if she were in the minority, uh, then so be it. And that's what happened, and I think, I think that's what happened. And if so, I think that's really ugly and disgusting. And he needs to come forward and testify publicly about all this. So but also in this piece you wrote for National Review Online, uh, I really recommend everybody read this piece. Uh, did Mueller sit on his no collusion conclusion by DeRoy Murdoch, who joins us right now? DeRoy, you also talked about a couple other times, you know, key testimonies by Trump loyalists that also indicated uh, that there was uh, a high, a very low likelihood of uh, collusion between the Kremlin and the Trump campaign. What were those other couple of instances you thought that jumped out at you? Yeah, I th- there's, I think, really a smoking gun sitting there right in the middle of the Mueller report on page 144. Uh, and a, a gentleman I know who's a, a former federal pros- prosecutor actually called this to my attention. And uh, it lays out what happened on election night, November uh, 9th, November 8th, 2016, when, when Donald J. Trump was elected president. Uh, three in the morning, Hope Hicks, who at that time was his uh, campaign press secretary, uh, got a telephone call, and somebody was talking to her in a thick accent, thick ru- Russian accent. She couldn't quite make out what the man was saying, but she did was able to make out the words Putin call. And uh, she said, all right, all right, why don't you send me an email, and I'll do with this in the morning. So the next day, November 9, 2016, this is Wednesday uh, after the election, uh, she gets an email from someone saying that uh, the subject line is message from Putin in English with a Russian attachment. And basically this person said that uh, he represented uh, President uh, Putin, who wanted to offer his congratulations to President Trump for winning the election, and so on. Uh, she then contacted Jared Kushner, and the two of them then spent the next five days trying to, to, to determine, you know, is this a hoax, is this person legit, or whatever. Uh, they contacted, or Jared contra- contracted, contacted, excuse me, uh, Dmitry Symes, a former Russian uh, emigre and uh, foreign policy expert, he said, look, get in touch with uh, Kislyak, the ambassador uh, from Russia in Washington, D.C., which Jared did. And he said, yes, this guy who sent the email, Sergei Kuznetsov was his name, uh, is legit. He works for in the embassy. Uh, this is a legitimate overture. Please pass this along. Hope Hicks p- passes this along. 
And then finally, five days after the election, uh, Trump and Putin finally speak, and Putin offers his congratulations and says uh, before the tr uh, Trump and the transition staff that he hopes they can uh, uh, have dialogue and communicate and improve the uh, Russian, U.S.-Russian relationship out of the crisis area in which it stood at the time. Uh, so the point here is that it took uh, five but, days. But when, was, when did uh, Mueller get this information? That was Hope Hicks' testimony? Uh, yeah, he got this information from testimony and interviews with Hope Hicks, with Jared Kushner, and also with a man named Pet Petr Abin, who is the chief of Alpha Bank, which is Russia's largest commercial lender. Uh, that gentleman, the Russian, had a one-on-one -on -one meeting with Putin in the fourth quarter of 2016, and he heard from Putin his frustration at how hard it was to get in touch with the Trump team. And this is Mueller writing from, from the Mueller report. He says the following, According to Avin, Putin indicated that he did not know with whom formally to speak and generally did not know the people around the president-elect, unquote. Those are Robert Mueller's words, precisely. Did not know the people around the president-elect. And we're to believe that all this collusion went on and the Russians and the Trump team were hanging out together and on and on. And here is, here is somebody from Russia telling Mueller, and again, Mueller says in his words, that uh, they uh, didn't speak and generally that Putin did not know the people around the president-elect, according to what Avin said. Uh, now, the testimony that, that uh, Mueller got from these people, uh, July 2017, Kushner te uh, testified. Uh, December 2017, Hope Hicks testified. And Avin uh, gave a statement on August 2, 2018. Now, he gave and a I statement to whom? Avin gave a statement uh, to Mueller? Uh, to Mueller and the FBI and, and those wow. uh, federal investigators. Yeah. Mm. So I think putting those three dots together, I think by August 2 of last year, at the latest, at the latest, uh, the conclusion really must have been, look, if it took Putin five days to get in touch with, with Trump, there was no collusion before the election. There was no collusion. This stuff was ridiculous. And at that point, I think Mueller really had a, a duty to the American people and to Congress and, frankly, to President Trump, who's been dragged through all this for, for uh, such a long time, to come forward and say, look, you know what? We don't think there's collusion there. You know, we can maybe continue to look for obstruction, but the collusion is not there. And instead, he kept his mouth shut. We didn't hear anything from Mueller until April. And we had a nice, big, long and big uh, national midterm election with all of this. And basically what Mueller did was to, to uh, keep the, uh, this, I would call it, exculpatory evidence away from the 325 million jurors in the American Court of Public Opinion. And people went to the polls without having this information, which would have been very helpful. Uh, who knows if the GOP would have won the House or lost the House. But people should have been able to go to the polls knowing, yep, in fact, Donald J. Trump is not a Russian asset. There was no Russian collusion. This stuff is nonsense. And Mueller had us go to the polls without giving us that vital, vital, vital information. And I think that's absolutely sinful. It's, 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 to me, it's, it's unconscionable. Now, but let's just, let's just for giggles give Mueller the benefit of the doubt. So maybe when Kushner testified in July of 2017, it didn't add up to fully exculpatory information. He knew the FBI when he testified before the Mueller team. They knew through Kushner that that there was difficulty in uh, with Putin getting a hold of Trump. Uh, that it took five days to even organize the call between two world leaders. And then Hope Hicks spoke to them, looks like six months later, December of 2017, and basically confirmed that and probably also gave them the emails or had given them the emails beforehand and they were reading the emails to her when they were interrogating her that was basically showing uh, that this Kuznetsov guy from the embassy was having trouble getting a hold of the team as well. 
So that's December 2017. But Avin, now I remember reading what you say is page 144, uh, and it didn't strike me that this, uh, the head of Alpha Bank, one of the biggest, I think the biggest, most powerful bank in Russia, private bank in Russia, uh, actually, I didn't notice that Avin had actually given evidence to the FBI which very clearly, taken the context of Hicks and Kushner, makes it fairly obvious that there was a difficulty communicating between the two teams. Uh, if not difficulty, and it, it, it sounds to me from Avin's uh, testimony that, that Putin himself was fairly uh, frustrated by it. Now, having said that, so we're looking at the difference between, uh, you know, so let's say they knew when Avin was interviewed on August 2nd, 2018, months before the elections. And they and then all the way through to March 22nd, they kept quiet. Mueller kept quiet. Not just through uh, the election, but for the months after. So what's got to happen? I, I understand that we need Mueller to testify. I understand that we need, we want to see uh, the transcript if it's, if it's a, a, a private... Uh, uh, testimony or public testimony, we want to see it on television. What are we going to do about this? I mean, obviously, Mueller, if he set, if he, let me, let me tell you this, Droy. I mean, I sat before the Mueller team in uh, early May of 2018, and I thought it was fairly obvious to me that my prosecutor, my, my uh, interviewer, th seemed to believe that there was Russian collusion. It's the questions he was a, was asking me were all about, you know, seemed to lead toward, you know, trying to prove Russian collusion. For three hours, he asked me Russian flavored questions. So let's just say Hicks and Kushner didn't uh, give them the pause they should have that they wanted uh, to believe that there was no Russian collusion. I sat down with them. I gave them nothing. I can imagine that everybody who sat down with them gave them nothing. If you look at the the Mueller the Mueller report, so let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say they didn't know until August second. What would you have expected Mueller to do? Would you have expected him to, you know, basically, uh, uh, you know, fill his underwear like like Comey did before the elections? <laughs> I like how you put that. Yeah, I just think that when when he was able to sit down, I'm assuming that the people who interviewed those, these folks went back to their boss and said, hey, boss, uh, Mr. Mueller, here's what we learned today, that uh, we have the evidence or the statements from Kushner and Hicks on this side of the Atlantic. Then we have Avin saying this, making this comment from uh, the other side of the Atlantic, what the Russian side of the picture is. And who knows which other people they may have talked to. Uh, and at that point, I really think it becomes clear that this, this if, it, if it took five days, not five minutes, five hours uh, overnight, but five days for the Russian team to figure out who do we talk to among around Trump just to issue a, a friendly, you know, congratulatory uh, telegram or, or, you know, a message or email or attachment, whatever, uh, that whatever lines of communication supposedly existed during, the, in, during this elaborate uh, collusion conspiracy really weren't there, and that this was illusory, uh, that it turned out to be uh, not uh, proof and evidence, but in fact just a bunch of unicorns. Uh, at that point, Mueller really needed to, to bring his team together. So you know what? We've been looking for something that doesn't exist. There's a wild goose chase. This has to stop. Um, I describe it in my piece as a bit like having a doctor who thinks you've got cancer, and he puts you through chemotherapy. And, of course, that's painful. You lose your hair, et cetera, et cetera. 
Uh, and then after a while, he figures, oh, okay, there is no cancer. I, I, I had a bad diagnosis. But then he continues the chemotherapy. The chemotherapy goes on, and your hair, hair doesn't grow back, and you feel thin. You lose weight. You're probably throwing up when you come back from the chemotherapy treatments. And they go on for eight months longer than necessary. Why would he put you through that kind of cruelty? If a doctor did that sort of thing, he'd lose his license, he'd be sued for malpractice, and pretty soon he'd probably have all of his money in his beach house, and deservedly so. And yeah. instead what we had is the, the, the judicial equivalent of chemotherapy with Donald J. Trump as the main patient getting the chemotherapy, and all 325 million of us fighting and screaming and being divided and engaging in, in the kind of strife and tension I can't remember seeing in, in this country in 55 years with tremendous political division, and largely in part because half the country thinks the president of the United States is a Russian agent, and the other half doesn't believe so. And the chemotherapy should have stopped as soon as Robert Mueller realized, oh, the patient, in fact, doesn't have cancer. And it went on and on and on for at least eight more months longer than necessary. We know. Judicial malpractice. Yeah, absolutely. But, but we do know that these folks really believe that there was Russian collusion. I mean, they believed at least that they could prove that there was contact between the two organizations. They couldn't even do that. Couldn't even Not do even that. that. So... The whole thing, the whole thing hangs on a 10, 10 or fifteen minute meeting between uh, Don Jr. and this uh, Russian lawyer that, that started and ended in fifteen minutes. With Jared Kushner sending his secretary a message saying, "This is a waste of time. Please uh, buzz me or come in and get me because I don't want to be here. This is ridiculous." That, that's that's the whole elaborate, uh, you know, uh, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg type scenario we're, we're led to believe uh, involved this uh, this KGB asset named Donald J. Trump. Uh, with his strings being pulled by, by, by Putin. That's all they've got, this little 10, 15-minute meeting in Trump Tower. That's the, that's the extent of it. Right, bookended it by... Be nothing. Yeah, bookended by the lawyer, Veselnitskaya, meeting with uh, Fusion GPS before the meeting and after the meeting. What Fusion a question. Isn't that amazing? How is that? I guess they were, they were probably talking about baseball scores or maybe uh, comparing the, the operas of, uh, uh, I don't know, Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky or something well, like that. Well, uh, let me ask you this. Why isn't that getting any more traction the fusion gps well, handling the, of vessel guy which is apparently the linchpin meeting that caused everybody to think there was russian collusion uh well i guess probably for the same reason that the article i wrote has not gotten anywhere near the attention i hope there's a there's a, a big faction in the american media which are completely married to this uh russian collusion hoax and they're not gonna let it go they're still running around capitol hill uh you know trying to hold meetings on this and so on and their people just will not let go of this because if they do and they they uh, understand and, and concede that yes, there was no Russian collusion. Then they basically have to concede that yes, in fact, Donald J. Trump won the election of 2016 fair and square. Hillary Clinton ran a bad campaign; she didn't work hard enough, and she lost fair and square. And they just can't admit that to themselves. They're still running around uh, with, uh, under the illusion that the election was stolen. Hillary deserved it; she should be, be in the White House right now. And this evil evil man, Donald J. Trumpovich. And his uh, Russian friends stole it from from the American people, and they they can't let go of that. This is like their pacifier. It's like trying to take the the pacifier out of the mouth of a of a one year old baby. Ain't gonna happen, or at least not with a lot of kicking and screaming. And these grown up babies will not put their put their damn pacifier down and get on and, and try to govern this country. Again, I, I'm speaking to Deroy Murdoch, an old friend of mine who's a great writer. Um, Andy, uh, this uh, talking about his article. Did Mueller sit on his no collusion conclusion, which popped? On May 31st on nationalreview.com, I really advise you to take a listen, uh, t take a read of this. It's and what's what's stunning to me is that DeRoy's story, which I mean, 
as as you said, Roy, you were tipped by somebody, you know, a former you former federal prosecutor, that that that, that this basically this uh, this meeting that uh, the the chairman of Alpha Bank, the Russian bank, that that he had uh, with the with the FBI in August second of twenty eighteen, that should have put a pin in it. That should and anybody. Uh, who is a, a federal investigator should have understood by that time after the Kushner testimony, after the Hope Hicks testimony, by the way, after my testimony and J.D. Gordon's testimony and Carter Page's testimony, none of which pointed to any Russian collusion. They got a capper with the chairman of Alpha Bank test, uh, uh, being interviewed by the FBI saying that Putin himself told him that he is having trouble getting a hold of anybody at all from the Trump operation. August 2nd of 2018. To me, I agree with the premise of your story, uh, DeRoy, that there should be a subpoena of Robert Mueller. Uh, we, we, the Senate Judiciary Committee should subpoena him immediately. I agree with you. I mean, this whole thing where he gave this press conference, or no, it wasn't even a press conference, it was a, really a photo op. Please take pictures of me while I talk a few weeks ago. And then at the end, somebody raises his hand and he goes, oh, no questions, and he walks away. What the hell is this? This country has been torn in two for two and a half years, and here's the man designated to get to the bottom of this and figure out what happened. Uh, is, is, it, is this country run by a KGB agent or not? He comes to the conclusion that it isn't. And, of course, people want to know, please tell us more. And he says, oh, no, no questions, and just walks away. Unbelievable. What, what arrogance. From my perspective, the, the, the report itself is just shot through with innuendo and um, you know, omission. Uh, what's omitted here, I mean, I mean, on my little page 41, a little three-quarters of a page about me, there are just absolutely bold omissions and really slutty innuendo in that little four or five paragraph entry. And I thought to myself, if they're doing that to me, a, a marginal player in this whole thing, imagine what they're doing to other people who are more central to this. And this is a perfect example. I mean, perfect example. Any federal prosecutor who read about the July 17 Kushner interview uh, in there, in the report, read about the December 2017 Hope Hicks interview, and, and read about the uh, Avin uh, interview in August of 2018, 90 days before the election, uh, they would have, I mean, it's not even addressed in the report, DeRoy. The, this report, it's garbage, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I've got uh, various people who, as a columnist, who do research for me, including a, a terrific intern of mine named Michael Malarkey, who's just wonderful. And I'll say, hey, would you research this and, and look up some facts, figures for me? And sometimes I'm ready to write a piece about, you know, some amazing hypothesis I have and some brilliant conclusion. And he'll bring me the data, and I'll look and go, oh, well, you know, that doesn't add up, and I thought this would be there, and that's not there. And I have to think, oh, you know what, I, I guess there's no story. I was wrong. Um, and this is just for writing an op-ed. If I have a similar situation, the people who are working for me bring me back the data, which would be the evidence from these people, and they do, the dots do not connect, or they don't connect at least the hypothesis I have. And this is something involving the President of the United States, the entire federal government, uh, U.S.-Russian relations, and 328 million Americans trying to figure out if we're going to be able to get along as, as, as equally as, as citizens. Uh, and then I, I realize these dots don't connect, and then I clam up about it for at least eight months. That is, is vulgar. I describe it as, as a public vulgarity is what it is. And, and Mueller's paid no price for this. Um, I, don't know if it, if, if, I don't know if what he did is criminal or not. It may not be. But at the bare minimum, what he needs to do is come in, answer these questions, sit before the American public, explain what he knew, when he knew it, 
and lay all this out so at least we'll know if this, whether this man did the job he should have done or whether, in fact, he engaged in a massive cover-up that may have cost the Republican Party control of the House and also caused 328 million of us to scream and yell and fight with each other for eight months longer than necessary. I, I get more and more disappointed in this country every day, and 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 I, I find myself, I, I don't have any faith in the Inspector General of the Department of Justice Horowitz. I don't have any faith in the U.S. Attorney out in Salt Lake who was supposed to be looking into this Huber. I certainly had no faith in Attorney General Sessions. I had no faith in uh, Rod Rosenstein, the Deputy Attorney General. And then in comes Barr, and I'm like, okay, you know, Show me a reason to be optimistic, A.G. Barr. And then he does. He appoints uh, uh, U.S. Attorney Durham to investigate all of this stuff. Now, take a step back from that. I mean, you're a student of government for, that I know of, 30 years, more. Um, Mm -hmm. Does Durham do anything to Mueller for, for not... Saying, you know, telling America 90 days before the election when he knew for certain that there was no no uh, a coordination between Russia and the United States, uh, Russia and, and the Trump campaign. Would Durham or anybody do anything about that? Yeah, the question is, what would you do? Uh, I don't know if it's against the law if you're doing an investigation not to bring forth exculpatory evidence uh, on a you know, really um, fast, fast track uh, timeline. Uh, so I don't know if he actually broke the law, but I think this was certainly uh, ethically questionable, if not unethical. Uh, and I think the, the bare minimum we, we ought to do is, is get the facts on this and uh, disabuse ourselves of the notion that Mueller is this uh, wonderful, angelic, uh, completely uh, uh, morally uh, uh, upstanding uh, character who, who approached this whole thing uh, you know, as if he descended from the heavens uh, on the day that he was appointed special counsel. Uh, if, in fact, he did this sort of thing, I think it really shows us that he's really a partisan hack, uh, that he put the never-Trump uh, priorities ahead of the priority of, of uh, swift and, and effective justice, if you will, and getting the bottom of the things and, and, and delivering the truth to the American people on as, as timely a basis as possible. And if that means that Mueller's reputation is, is, is given uh, the appropriate downgrade it deserves, uh, that's the least, I think, that should happen to him. Um, if it's something that actually violates professional ethics, then there's a question of whether whether he ought to be disbarred for this. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not, not a legal ethicist, so I wouldn't know. But there's got to be some some level of accountability for this, and right now there is none. And the bare minimum is bring in Mueller and make him answer questions in public at a bare, bare, min, bare minimum. And, and, but, I mean, it sounds like, you know, uh, uh, Sidney Powell, who is now General Flynn's attorney, thank God, mm-hmm. uh, wrote an incredible book thank called— God for that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. License to Lie, uh, which talked about the Department of Justice's manipulations and, and unethical activity during the Enron scandal uh, several years ago, where she was a, a defense attorney. And uh, uh, in, in, that, in that book, which is great, I highly recommend it, uh, she talks about exculpatory information that was held back, the different unethical things that the attorneys did. And some of those attorneys suffered for it, but most of them didn't. The Department of Justice is not designed to hold people accountable and has gone through great pains to make sure that they don't. So we'd have to see a sea change at the direction of Attorney General Barr anyway to do to see anything happen to Mueller and his team. So basically, it's this. Uh, if you're reading DeRoy Murdoch's story, uh, did Mueller sit on his no collusion conclusion in the National Review? 
a story that's been out there for 19 days, you need to understand right now that Robert Mueller knew that there was no Russian collusion at the latest 90-plus days before the 2018 elections. Let that sink in, ladies and gentlemen. He let the elections go off with the Democrats screaming Russian collusion all the way through Election Day when he knew damn well it didn't exist. And he watched the American elections spin out of control when he had the information to clear things up. Let that sink in. It's an awful, awful realization to know uh, the, the stalwarts of our justice system are players. That's all they are. Deroy, thanks a lot for, uh, for participating in my uh, Still Standing episode. I, I always count on you. I really recommend everybody follow Deroy Murdoch's work on, on uh, nationalreview.com. Check him out on Fox, one of the brightest guys I know. Deroy, thanks a lot for, uh, for uh, calling in. I really appreciate it. Uh, Mike, thank you very much, and I'm, I'm so glad you're still standing after all that you've undergone over the last couple of years. Well, it, your support and, and your kindness through this period has been really important to me. Deroy, have a great day. Very good. You too. Still standing. Please remain standing. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Still Standing with Michael Caputo. I really appreciate you sticking around. It's been an interesting week, just about winding up. It's going to be more interesting for me next week. I actually get to go to the Medal of Honor presentation ceremony in the White House next week. I'm very excited about it, actually. The Medal of Honor awardee is Staff Sergeant David Bellavia, who's a very dear friend of mine. His uh, exploits and heroism during the Iraq war, specifically during the Battle of Fallujah, have impressed a lot of people. His book, House to House, about the Battle of Fallujah was a New York Times bestseller. It'll be a film soon. At the same time, we've got uh, uh, his heroism being recognized by the entire, uh, you know, the Pentagon, the White House, Congress. The Medal of Honor is an amazing, amazing Award. It's something I've always admired. I've read. I've always read the narratives that go along with the awards, uh, just to find out what true heroism is. And I've always really respected. It. And the idea that a good friend of mine would be would be given the Medal of Honor, it just it really blows my mind. I, I I've known David Bellavia for I guess nine years. Um, managed his race for uh, United States Congress. He and I speak, you know, he worked together on uh, veterans issues, on a couple of very important issues, issues that were important to he and I, and, uh, you know, lobbying Congress and such. And several months ago, David called me and he said, geez, I just heard from the Pentagon. It looks like my Medal of Honor has gone through. It was held up for many, many years for a lot of different reasons. I think very few of those reasons having anything at all to do with David Bellavia, kind of politics, and of course the politics within the Pentagon. I mean, who wants to give awards for the Iraq War? It apparently was some kind of a you know, a challenge for some, but heroism is heroism, and heroes are heroes, and I get to watch my good friend David Bellavia be awarded the Medal of Honor next Tuesday in the White House. 
it's something I don't think I'm ever going to forget. Um, you know, I've been to the White House quite a bit over my my career. I was just there what forty days ago with my family to visit with the president and the first lady. But to go and watch David be given this award, uh, to watch the president drape it around his neck and fasten it behind, I, I'm, I'm just going to be, I know it's going to blow me away. You know, uh, it's a great thing, too. It's, it's actually two full days, three nights of uh, celebration. Uh, the first night is an, uh, a dinner for those arriving. We all stay as part of the official party. We all stay in the same hotel. We're carted around Washington in a minibus of some sort. We go to special events. We, we're, we've been offered a very cool tour of the monuments by the Secretary of Interior himself. All the backroom stuff that most people don't get to see. I've heard about this tour. It's supposed to be really cool, so I'm definitely going on it. Yeah, it's going to be two great and one full day in the uh, uh, organized by the White House and one full day organized by the Pentagon. And then I'm, you know, Wednesday night we have a dinner and I'll say goodbye to David who actually enters active duty again. I don't I think as an enlisted man, he when he left the military when he left the United States Army Infantry, he was a staff sergeant. I believe he'll enter again as a staff sergeant if he hasn't already been sworn back in. Uh, I talked to David. He didn't really know what was going to go down. This is a big deal. You know, it, it changes a man's life. David's already quite successful as a radio talk show host here in Buffalo. Um, uh, he was active uh, in, in many different ways, not just in veterans' causes, but local causes, an investor in many local businesses. He's done well financially, as you can imagine. Um, he's, You know what's interesting? You, you see these fellows that are given the Medal of Honor. Typically, God bless them, they're, they're deceased because their heroism caused their demise. Very rare to have a living Medal of Honor uh, awardee. Uh, but they're just a special breed of people, I think. Uh, the way that David talked about it, because David has been able to speak to the other members of the Medal of Honor Society. What an elite society that would be to, to be a member of that. You know, I'll never, ever be able to see something like I'm going to see early next week watching David Bellavia be given the Medal of Honor. Um, if you're listening and... Check it out. I'll probably be in the camera shot uh, as he's doing this. He's there with his family and and close friends, uh, people he works with at the radio station, WBEN in Buffalo. It's really an honor to even be invited. Can you imagine being the person who's awarded? And then now David, I think, goes on USO tours. He's throwing out the first pitches at all games around the country. He goes, you know, he's basically the front line of advertising for the military, showing young men and women who are thinking that a career in the military might be for them, what honor really looks like, what you know, what what heroism really looks like. I, David has always been my hero. He's the most uncomfortable hero I've ever known. He doesn't like it being called that, and he, you know, I think he stopped blushing many years ago. His exploits, his exploits in Fallujah were highly regarded and the topic of a lot of conversation, especially when his book came out. The film that's going to come out is going to be amazing. But anyway, I want to thank everyone uh, who is backing up my podcast. You know, some uh, internet uh, leftist uh, with a lot of followers was making fun of the fact that I only have 
31 people backing me on Patreon. Um, and I, I just, I don't understand that logic. I can't imagine uh, anything better uh, than these 31 people backing me. We consider them executive producers. These are people who are investing in my content. I'm really proud of that. You know, people are, these leftists, they'll laugh at anything. If if someone's children's children die, they laugh at it. If someone gets ill, they laugh at it. They're sick and twisted people. But my executive producers back me up, and I appreciate William Parker, John Seifert, Henry Wiltazic, Sonia Carlin, Susan Havey, Darcy Swenson, George Noonan, Thomas Fulton, Stephen Flaminio, David Markey, Samantha Lynn, all executive producers, Jack Bromwich, Jordan Gostomsky, Brian Pazdursky, Susan Stevens, Patty Freeling, Bill Grant, Greb Mumbach, my old pal Mark Barry, Gary Stokes, Rachel, and Julie as well, uh, referring her to remain anonymous. Your support is very much appreciated. I don't care what some freak show on the Twitter machine thinks of it. I'm very proud to have your support and very appreciative. Thank you very, very much. You know, we just started this thing a couple of months ago. I'm looking forward to building this thing out into something bigger and better and something that's self-sustaining instead of me investing in this every week. You know, my, uh, my producer, Sean Dwyer, is very, very helpful. It's just the two of us. But it's still pretty pretty expensive. Once a week, 40 minutes of audio, videos once in a while. I haven't done one in a while, but I plan to do one, I think, tomorrow. And I blog at uh, stillstandingpodcast.com. So sign up at stillstandingpodcast.com. We'll send you a, an email whenever we have a new episode up. And uh, you can also sign up at iTunes, Twitter, all the usual suspects. Uh, radio.com is taking me on. I really appreciate that. And our listeners, they're, they're the, you know, they're, the, the list is growing and growing. We're up at about 1,500 listeners per episode now. I think that's great. I'm really excited about that. Um, you know, for a, a guy in the tiny little town outside of Buffalo, New York, the idea that 1,500 people care enough to download my podcast and listen to it, that means a lot to me. And when they write, that really means a lot. And I get a lot of letters. I really appreciate it. Some of them, I think, need to be read. Um, and uh, Howard Fritzy, Howard Fritzky, uh, sent me an email about my last week's podcast. It was about uh, Sydney. Uh, it was called Sydney Signs In. And uh, it was about the new attorney for General Michael Flynn, who didn't seem to be served very well by his previous attorneys. He never should have struck a plea deal with the Mueller team. And Sidney Powell has taken over, the author of uh, License to Lie, an incredible book. I really, really, honestly, just beg you to read that. License to Lie, it tells you just how, how corrupt, how self-serving our Department of Justice is. But anyway, Howard Fitzy wrote me last week. He said, These new turn of th this new turn of events should be very interesting indeed, talking about Sydney signing on. I've seen this woman, Sydney Powell, and what a powerful legal force she is, and most definitely our negative opinions dealing with the Mueller investigation. I watched her fascinated one night being interviewed by Mark Levin on his late night newscast. She was unbelievably calm, right to the point, and fascinating to listen to. 
She's now General Flynn's new attorney representing him in any more legal matters. My understanding, he may he may retract his guilty plea here in the next few days with her help. You might very well find some justice in this governmental trap and investigation. Howard, I, I don't know that he's going to withdraw his guilty plea. Uh, Sydney made a very uh, a quick statement after uh, she signed on. It was publicly announced that uh, that uh, his previous attorneys were leaving and that Sydney was taking over. She made it very clear that uh, right now the, the general is sticking with his plea agreement. And will that continue to be true? Howard, I'm not sure, but uh, it could be. I know Sydney a bit. Uh, we've worked together, uh, talked a bit on the phone. You know, we text, and when I heard she was, <laughs> she was thinking of uh, of uh, taking on the general's case. I texted her and congratulations. I didn't hear from her, <laughs> so I knew immediately it was true. Because <laughs> Sydney's really quick to get back to somebody and respond. Congratulations, General Flynn. You've got a great, a great representative. A great attorney, uh, someone who will do right by you. I hope there is something that she can do to achieve justice for General Flynn. I've talked to people uh, who know this whole, you know, federal investigation gambit, and they say that there is. Um, but I think it's dicey, and I, 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 I say a prayer for Sydney and the general, and of course the Powell family. They've all been through so much. It's interesting to me to see people gut a 35-year general, lieutenant general in the United States Army whose heroism is un-absolutely, absolutely, his heroism is is completely beyond question. Um, And his devotion to our nation is completely beyond question. But the left is so quick to accuse just so quick to point fingers, so quick to just basically write off the 35-year career of serving his country, thinking that Michael Flynn would somehow or another just decide after 35 years of serving the United States military that he was just going to go ahead and sell out to the Kremlin. Idiots. Never would he do that. Of course, never would General Flynn do that. He might have made some mistakes here and there, don't we all? But I, you know, I, I was going back and forth with this internet sensation who's been harassing me online today. They love doing it. They they have hundred thousand followers or more, and they call out their followers to drag you. They call it drag you. I don't know what kind of live these people lead. You know, the, this internet uh, uh, millennial who's after me today says that uh, uh, that uh, Oliver North is a war criminal. The guy doesn't even know what a war criminal is, doesn't even know what a war crime is. Never served his country, this millennial. Got more mustache wax than courage. But unfortunately, that's where we are today. We're at a point today where if you look on social media or if you watch any of the CNN or MSNBC shows talking about Iran shooting down $150, $160 million U.S. drone that was in uh, international airspace, they're cheering for Iran, saying that's Donald Trump's fault. They're actually siding with the mullahs. They're siding with the mullahs who throw gay men and women off of rooftops. 
They're siding with the mullahs who uh, believe in female genital mutilation, who force women to wear uh, uh, to, to lead lesser lives. Uh, but they would, they, you know, and Iran is no doubt beyond any shadow of a doubt, the largest, the biggest supporter of terrorism in the world. But now they're the champions of the left. These are the same people. If you look at Ben Rhodes and the other con artists out of the Obama White House who set up this uh, this Iran deal and shipped over uh, one and a half billion dollars in euros to Iran. These people applauded that deal. And now that Iran has decided to shoot down an expensive piece of American equipment in international waters, they're applauding the mullahs. That's how far we've gone where uh, skinny-legged jeans wearing millennials doused in mustache wax working out of mommy's basement are the ones who can call out someone for war crimes treason when they never ever once thought to serve their country now they're siding with iran you know it's funny what's going to happen if russia becomes more aggressive against the united states the, the Russia, who they have so, you know, been screaming about for two and a half years for, you know, uh, colluding with Donald Trump to defeat their queen, Hillary Clinton. What happens if, when, uh, not if, when Russia gets more uh, aggressive with the United States under Donald Trump? They've, it's going to happen in the next six years, no question. You know. They'll side with Russia. Can you imagine the irony of that? All the screaming and ranting and raving about this fake Russia hoax. And as soon as Vladimir Putin sticks his nose up in the air at Donald Trump, these same leftists who were wringing their hands, faking the concern over a bogus Russia hoax, will side with Vladimir Putin. If they'll side with the mullahs, dictators, strongmen, authoritarians, murderers, terrorists, they'll side with anyone. And I just don't understand what makes someone do this. What makes someone? I mean, I understand there are people that hate Donald Trump. Of course there are. I mean, politics brings that out in people. In addition, Donald Trump is not shy about his derision for the people who have led our country into the place where we are today. So the, the, the president doesn't hold any punches. So a lot of people that don't hold any punches when they punch back. I get that. The president can handle it. I can handle it. But to actually betray our nation, to actually assume that this destruction of $160 million piece of equipment, military U.S. military equipment, is funny, is Donald Trump's fault. You know, Donald Trump wasn't flying that drone up against Iran. It was the Pentagon, the same Pentagon that served us under Obama, under the Clintons. You know, it's it, the Pentagon works for all of us. Our military protects us. The people who were attacked here, the United States military by the Iranians, they're our friends. They're our, they're our citizens. They're our brothers and sisters, our sons and daughters. And they are, you know, these leftists are siding with Iran. Now, They'll say that they're not, but of course they are. They would rather see, they would gin up and try to cause 
military action between the United States and Iran just to destroy Donald Trump's chances at re-election. Make no mistake, the Iran and U.S. situation is dire. Make no mistake, Iran is closer every day to a nuclear weapon they never slowed down. The bogus Iran deal didn't stop them. It was designed to welcome them to uh, the family of nuclear proliferation, right? Now the left is cheering on the mullahs. I, I can never, ever understand it. And frankly, I don't know that I want to. And I'll tell you why. Listen, I know our nation is worth fighting for. I know the sacrifices our United States military made, I made as an Army uh, enlisted man. I know the sacrifices our civilian uh, workforce uh, uh, makes for our country. I mean, they may be 40-hour-a-week bureaucrats, but when the the feces hits the ventilator, they're 100-hour-a-week heroes to me and to you. Uh, When there's a hurricane and FEMA comes to town, when there's uh, 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 environmental crises, when there's uh, military crises, everybody pitches in. Everybody at the Pentagon who usually works a 40-hour week is working. They don't go home. You know, I know that I should feel compelled to jump back into the fray now that, what, um, you know, two and a half years after the attacks on my family and this bogus Russia hoax from the House, the Senate, and the Mueller investigation by Hillary supporters. I know I should feel emboldened that I survived, that I'm still standing, you might say, and that I should feel ready to get right back into the fight. But I look at my wife and my children, and I know that they're tired of this. My children don't know what I'm going through. My wife knows chapter and verse. My children don't know how much this is destroying our, 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 our home, how much this destroyed our home because we're on the mend now. I don't know if I have it in me to put my children and my wife through this again. I, my wife would stand right by me if I decided that I wanted to join the campaign, the re-election campaign, or one of the PACs, or or I wanted to get into another effort to try and stop the, the advance of socialism, which is where my heart lies, trying to stop the advance of communism, socialism. That's what I've always been about since I was a young man, since I joined the United States Army at, at 17 years old. I have always been anti-communist, anti-socialist, and we see socialism creeping up into our lives in every way. Here in New York, it is the People's Republic of New York. I swear to God, they, they've just passed the unionization of farm workers. We're going to see a steady dip in farm production, the dairy and, and agriculture production out of New York State. New York is mostly farmland. You may think of New York as high rises in, in Manhattan, but it's not. Manhattan is a very tiny part of our state. We now can, uh, women in in, uh, in New York can now abort babies up to the moment of birth, and they don't even have to have a doctor involved. Imagine that. New York has turned to shit, and our country is following in the same footsteps. The fact is, though, most of America is not like New York. This place is way out there, out on the fringe. 
Of course it is. Real Americans don't support this stuff. Real Americans don't support socialism. But am I going to get in the fight? I don't know. Maybe. I'm going to have to talk to my wife a lot. But the first thing I need to do is is earn. Earn. I got a, a daughter going into senior year in high school and... I got to pay for, you know, my share of that that college education. She's certainly going to be diving into cuz she's smart, very smart. I'm very proud of my daughter Maribel. I got to earn. I got to earn, and I'm telling you, the fight for freedom, the fight for democracy, the fight for America is not a place where you earn much. It's a selfless job. One I think I've been involved in for a long, long time, and especially in the last two and a half years. So, will I get involved? I don't know. I guess I'm involved right now, but I can tell you this, whatever I choose to do, I will never, as much as I despise the next president or the, the one after that, I will never root for our enemies just because it gives the president a bad day. Donald Trump doesn't give a damn what the left thinks of him, does not care. And I have come to admire that. It still bugs me a little bit when somebody makes fun of me on social media. It shouldn't. I've been at this for a little while, but, you know, uh, I've actually had, uh, uh, I've watched people get absolutely eviscerated on social media like Donald Trump and come back head held high. That's tough stuff to do. I want to go back to walking the earth like Kane and Kung Fu, bedroll over my shoulder. Just me and my wife and kids enjoying our lives like you do. You know, going to the pool, the community pool, camping out, you know, going out for ice cream, barbecuing on the back deck, not worrying about the people that want to try and kill me and my wife, all the death threats. I don't, so I don't have to carry a handgun everywhere I go. I don't have to worry about my daughters. You know, when my daughters fall ill, let me tell you something. Just from the crazy illnesses that bounce around their schools, even when they get ill, I wonder if somebody's been messing with my family. It's made me rightly, I guess, downright paranoid. I, I suppose I have a right to, but I want to stop this mindset. I don't want to be so adversarial. I am very happy with the pre- what the president is doing with our nation. I'm glad he has taken on our demons. I'm glad that he's gutting them. I'm glad that he's tearing our, our bureaucracy down in size. I'm glad that he's cutting taxes. I'm glad that he's adjusting our trade uh, uh, alliances. I'm glad that he's taking on immigration. I'm so happy with this economy. But I'm tired of fighting. I know we need to fight. I know we needed a fighter, and we got ourselves one. We're going to need heroes to continue this fight. Brave, courageous men and women, people like our president. But I'm so tired. I ask myself sometimes late at night if I'm one of those heroes, if I can be a strong and resilient fighter on into the future. It's a tough question. I really appreciate all the support I get from the people who back me on this podcast. I really appreciate the kind words I hear when I'm walking around. People who uh, email me, call me, text me, tweet me, 
Facebook me. I really appreciate it. Everything, all your support, I, I value it so much. But more than anything else, I value my family. So I have some decisions to make as we approach the next battle. Every day has been a battle since Donald Trump came down that escalator. But the next one, 2020, it's going to be awful. You better be ready for it. I wonder if I'm ready for it. Are you ready for it? <laughs> I guess we're going to find out, huh? Michael Caputo for Still Standing. I really appreciate you listening in, indulging me. Things are going to get weirder before they get normal. Boy, I can't wait for this investigation of the investigators to start producing fruit. I can tell you one thing here at the end of my podcast. I don't think Department of Justice Inspector General Horowitz was doing anything. I don't think Huber, the U.S. attorney out in, in, uh, in uh, Salt Lake, was doing anything to investigate this investigation, this bogus investigation. But I can tell you from my point of view, my personal point of view, from my personal experience, the fact of the matter is U.S. Attorney John, Dunham, John Durham is doing something. He is thorough. I'm not going to tell you why I know. But boy, oh boy, is this going to be fun. Thanks a lot again. This is Michael Caputo. Still standing. That's stillstandingpodcast.com. <laughs>